you. We're reading from Galatians chapter 3, and we're reading, and that's, that's on page 1169, 1169, chapter 3, verse uh, 23 is where we're starting. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, as as uh, if you've been with us for a few weeks, either online or in person, you'll know that we are working through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to um, Christians in uh, Galatia. When you, when, you read, when you read the Bible, it's, it's written in English, it's bound in a modern book, it can be easy to just go straight to the, the ideas within the letter that we're reading and forget that this letter comes to us in a very particular context. Uh, that The Bible comes to us in the context of, of West Asia and it comes in a particular historical context. And it's really interesting, actually, just to reflect on what's happening. Paul wrote this letter about 48 AD, they think, and at the time, the people he's writing to, and the, the people are aware particularly of the history of the Jewish people, they ha- this is a time of great upheaval. Since about 30 AD, around the time of Jesus' death and then resurrection, there have been numerous Jewish revolutions, and there's more to come uh, in the years to come after this letter. There's great political upheaval. In fact, one of the great changes that took place around the birth of Jesus' time was the death of Herod, great, the great king of Israel, who was also a, t- a great tyrant. It was a moment of great political upheaval. A- and in this context, you would be... It, it surprises me, actually, as we read this morning's text, to see that for Paul, the main moment in history is none of those things. Rather, what we start to see in this little section is that for Paul, the arrival of the gospel, as in the arrival of Christ and everything that he's come to do, is actually the great moment. There's so much anticipation in this portion of scripture. So he says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody. Now, 
that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He talks about before the faith and now the faith has come. There's a sense of great anticipation for the arrival of the Christian faith. And Paul says, this is the great moment of history. This is quite extraordinary to say because when you think about his writing, it's like, for example, being in the middle of a pandemic and saying something else is the great moment of history that you're encountering. But this is the unique insight of Scripture. First, to those, those early, that early church, early believers, and still to us now. That, in fact, what Paul's talking about is this great turning point in history. Why can Paul say that? Is he just kind of getting riled up because he wants to continue on and he's to keep their attention as he continues to berate them in this letter? Or is there a purpose behind it? Is there a mindset behind it? I think it's very much a case of the way that Paul conceives of history and of God's work. So Paul will say in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Paul conceives of everything that's happened as part of this great story of God at work. A great story of God at work. In fact, we skipped a little bit because last week we, we finished at verse 14. This week we picked up at verse 23. In verse 15 to 22, it's, it's just kind of a quick coverage of the history of Israel. Um, Abraham, Moses, the prophets. You know, Paul's just quickly cursing through that. But his point is that all of that history is actually leading to Jesus because Paul conceives of the world as one great story. And Jesus' arrival and the gospel is actually the turning point in this great history. In fact, that's why he says in verse 24, the law was our guardian. This is an extraordinary thing to say because for Israelites, for Hebrews, the law is actually the whole purpose of the Old Testament in many ways. The law is the great gift of God to his people. But Paul says, no, it's just a guardian. It's just... It's, I mean, the word guardian is very interesting. It's like a harsh tutor. You know, someone who wrapped you over the knuckles when you played the wrong piece, uh, the wrong key on the piano. That's the kind of image he's using. He's saying the law is that thing. It's just a guardian until Christ Jesus comes. And so for Paul, the anticipation we sense in this part of the letter is in line with his whole view that this faith that has come into the world is the most pivotal moment in the history of the world. This faith. This faith is the turning point. This faith is the thing that changes history and impacts it around which history has been coming to and from which history will go. That's the vision of not just Paul, it's what you find in Peter's writings, it's what you find in John's writings. I mean, Revelation is the tying up of all these threads in Christ. Even the future is understood by this moment. For John, this gospel, this faith, is the faith. And so it's really, actually, the question for us to ask ourselves is, what does it look like to be people of this faith? That's what Galatians is challenging us. What does it look like for us to be people of this faith? Now, in our culture, there's lots of people who consider themselves people of faith. Uh, that might loosely be considered someone who has some kind of religious inclination. In fact, I think probably it doesn't even need to be religious anymore. If you just trust in yourself, you might describe yourself as a person of faith. But what we see in Galatians and in Paul's writings and in the New Testament is the constant claim that to be a person of this faith is a very, very specific thing. 
a very specific thing. So Paul will say this in verse 26 and 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For you are all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Paul says to be a person of this faith is to be in Christ Jesus. This is a very common term for Paul. He uses it repeatedly in pretty much every one of his letters. You will find him using this term regularly. What does it mean to be a person of this life-changing, history-altering faith? It means to be in Christ for Paul. It's the case in uh, Corinthians, it's the case in Ephesians, which we just used as some of our texts to prompt our, our prayers just before. Uh, Philippians, again here in Galatians, this is constant language for Paul. Do you want to know what it means to be a person of this faith? Well, in Paul's language, it means to be in Christ Jesus. Now, the question is, what does that mean? Because Christ is, Jesus is not this kind of blob in which you insert yourself into, right? No one, I mean, I can't see anyone here with a whole heap of Jesus surrounding them. So what does it mean? What is Paul describing? Well, helpfully, I think, in this verse, he uses a couple of metaphors. I want to focus on the clothe yourselves with Christ. It's, it's actually common in the scriptures for the different writers to use metaphors to understand this idea of being in Christ. Jesus himself uses the, the metaphor of the vine and its, and its branches that come out of it. Paul uses other metaphors like the body, like marriage, like a building. Uh, but here he uses the metaphor of being clothed with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be a person of this faith? It means to have been clothed with Christ. The metaphor is so helpful. One writer helpfully points out four things that arrive out of the metaphor which really help us to think about what it means to be in Christ. First of all, clothing is all about identity. It's all about identity. I mean, I, I, love, I love teen kind of high school movies. One of the great ones is this movie in 1995 called Clueless. It's, a, it's an adaption of Jane Austen's Emma. And at the start of the film, they go through all the different groups in the school, but the producers very deliberate when they created the scene. Each group clothed a different way because their clothing, this is so true, isn't it, in, in our teenage lives, but it's true of all of us, uh, well, our clothing identifies us. My daughter asked me this morning as I was getting the clergy collar on to go to the early service, she said, why do you wear that shirt? And I said, oh, it's because what I wear reflects the people that I'm speaking to. So, you know, when I go to the early morning service, I wear a very formal collar. When I come here, I wear an open collar. Yeah. Take from that what you will about who you are. Take from what I will about who I am as well. Your clothing identifies you, doesn't it? You, you may not be the most fashion-aware person, and I understand there are people in this building like that, but nonetheless, you still choose your clothes with a purpose. It tells us something about you. And so to be clothed with Christ is to say that my identity is shaped by Christ. Secondly, to be clothed by Christ indicates a closeness of relationship with Christ. There's nothing closer to you than your clothing, not even your spouse. There is nothing closer to you than your clothing. 
And so to be clothed with Christ is an intimacy with Christ. Such is the closeness that you and Christ have. Thirdly, to be clothed with Christ is to take Christ into every area of your life. You take your clothes into every area of your life. And so you take Christ with you into every area of your life. And fourthly, clothing is also about safety. So, I mean, this is not just true sociologically, it's true spiritually. Because in Genesis, when Adam and Eve disobey God there, suddenly their eyes are open to all their vulnerabilities and insecurities. God in his mercy gives them what? Clothing to protect them, actually. Clothing is about, it's a security blanket. It's the thing that keeps you safe in the midst of other people. And so to be clothed with Christ is to find your safety in Christ. Now, when you look at all those things, you know what's really interesting? Paul is saying, if you want to be a person of this faith, this life-changing, history-altering faith, it is to be in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be clothed by Christ. And to be clothed by Christ is to be these kind of things. Now, you might think, oh, I'm stretching it, but you can apply these things, actually, to any of those metaphors that Jesus or Paul or the other writers use to identify in Christ. And they're true. Like in marriage, I mean, your identity is, in a sense, shaped by your marriage, isn't it? To be married to someone, they shape you. To be married to someone is to be in a close relationship with you. To be married to someone is to have them, in a sense, in every area of your life. Maybe not physically, but existentially so. To be married is to find some kind of relational safety with this person. And what's really interesting about this list is not a lot of it has to do with some kind of intellectual affirmation. This list doesn't have, I go to church every Sunday. This list doesn't have, I can recite the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed without looking at the words. This, Chris, this list is, is deeply about your self-understanding. Is my identity in Christ? Do I have a close... And I tell you, if you go through this list and you can't answer these questions in the affirmative, I want to ask, I want to challenge you, perhaps you're not in Christ. You know, because you come to a building, because you can affirm certain doctrines, doesn't make you a person of this faith. Being in Christ, says Paul. That's the specificity of the scriptures on this. If you don't have these things, you need, to, you need to pause. You need to pause and actually ask, who am I and who is God to me? Because being in Christ is this primary sense of self-understanding. Do I have an identity primarily shaped by Christ? Of course no one's perfect at this. It is a constant struggle. But if I look at those things, I think, nah, not really. I want to ask you this question. Are you really in Christ? Are you really? Because if you're not, says Paul, you're not part of this extraordinary faith, this thing that's changed the world, that's history-altering, that's life-altering. What's really I love about this passage, though, is it doesn't just stop at this self-understanding. Because Paul says this understanding of being in Christ actually transforms the way you live your life the way you live your life. And so in verse 28 and 29, you see these two implications of being someone who's in Christ. Uh, so he'll say this, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying that all of the marks, the, the, the hallmarks of power, all of the ways of measuring yourself in a social sense are stripped away. 
I mean, it doesn't mean there's no distinctions. If you're from India, you're still from India. That hasn't changed. But where that puts you in the community, that doesn't matter anymore. That's not what measures it, especially where that puts you before the Lord. Before the Lord, it does not matter. They're all marks. Race, Jew or Gentile. Uh, Rank, social rank, slave or free. Gender, male or female. Before the Lord, there is no distinction. There is no distinction. Now, some, some people might be hearing this and say, oh, finally, the Bible's saying something that's worth hearing. But I want to say, before you, before you have a checklist which you tick in order to authorise whether the Bible's worth listening to, see what's really happening here, right? The Bible is actually creating the checklist which you thought was worthwhile. The Bible's actually the reason you have this intuition for egalitarianism, where you have this intuition for a flat structure, where you have this intuition that all people should hear the gospel and should be before God. This is what the Bible says. And you know what? This is the hallmark of the Christian faith. This is what this faith did. This is what Rodney Stark, the historian, says. I don't have this on the screen because it's a long quote, so listen along. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. So, to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis of social solidarity. See, what Stark's saying is, this gospel changes the world. It changes the world. It changes the way people think of each other. It changed Kushak's life. Why is it that a 68-year-old has a heart for a 33-year-old Indian guy? Not because they have an affinity, just a natural affinity. No, because the gospel... The gospel has reoriented the way that that man thinks about the distinctions in life of what makes someone worthwhile. It's extraordinary. In fact, that's why one of the, one of the things we long for in our vision statement is we long to be a church made beautiful, diverse and large. We want to be a church that's, that covers generations and cultures. We want ethnic diversity and and. and and generational diversity. Not just because, hey, that'd be great, and that's a missional strategy, and that, that'll mean there's more people in the building, but because that's a gospel shape to God's people. And what's really interesting, actually, is that in this verse, Paul's claim is not that this is how the world should be, although that would be good. His claim is that this is what it should look like for the, the, church, the church of God, the family of God, because your new identity is not nothing but in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And so here's my question for you. Here's how you can diagnose whether your heart's on board with this. Are the people you long to be saved any different from you? Are the people you long to be saved any different from you? I mean, it's fine. It's fine to want, you know, a a 42-year-old Sri Lankan guy to be saved. It's fine for me to want that, right? But do I have a heart to see people who are not like me saved? 
Because if you believe the gospel, if you're someone who's of this faith, who's clothed in Christ, who's shaped by that foundation, that's what your heart should be. It should force you to stop just looking around for people like you and to find the people who are not like you but don't know the Lord Jesus. Such is the transformative power of the gospel. That's why the gospel can go out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That's why the gospel is growing as largely in Asia as it is in Africa because the gospel reorients our priorities. It reshapes our thinking of other people. I just, we've got to get better at this. As a church, we've got to look to reach people who are not like us because the gospel calls us to be a church that's not defined by all of the usual descriptions of people and culture. That's the first implication. But there's a second one. It's in verse 29. And it's this. Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The gospel gives you a place and purpose, a very specific place and purpose. It doesn't just say, you're worthwhile, go and do whatever you want. It puts you right in the middle of a story, Abraham's story. You know, I love that, that show, um, Who Do You Think You Are? You know how they get people, they go through their life history and it turns out that, that their, their parent or their grandparent's parent was a was a Holocaust survivor or, some, or invented some great medicine or something. And what I love about it is they're often celebrities who in of themselves have pretty successful lives. But this truth about something that happened hundreds of years ago lights them up. My gosh, my life has purpose. It's part of this great story. We all want this. We all want a sense of purpose. And we want a place. We don't want to feel like we're just kind of drifting we're part of a great story in the gospel to the extent that you're clothed with Christ because you're in Christ, puts you in this faith, in this great story, so you are part of Abraham's story. Now, here's the thing that's even more extraordinary. It's not just that you, if you do that, are like the product of the promise made to Abraham. Like, aha, see, God said something to Abraham and he's filled his blessing to Abraham, you're it. That's good, that's true, you are Abraham's seed. But he goes on to say, and heirs. And heirs yourself, according to the promise. You're just like Abraham, actually. You're a receiver of the promise, not just the fulfillment of the promise. Do you see what the gospel is doing when you put your faith in Christ, when you are clothed by Christ? You're someone who finds a purpose and a place in the great story. You are not drifting you are under the hand of God in his great story. Now, here's the thing. I think, unfortunately, most of us are spiritually immature in this. I think that's just the reality. Most of us tend to... And you see in the, in the chapter 4, particularly, part that we read, Paul keeps moving from this idea of being underage to being an heir. You know, there's like the sense of, like, they're, they're, they're infants, and then there's the spiritual immature, and he's really prompting them, no, no, realise where you can be. And he's prompting them because they keep falling back into being underage, being infants, right? I think most of us are actually often in this space. You know why? Because we're still living under a law. We're saying to ourselves, I need to climb a social strata. Now, we might not be doing that ourselves, but maybe we have like vicariously done that through our children. You know, maybe it's the, it's the, law, it's the law which says, the more capable my child is, the better off they'll be. 
the more worthwhile their life will be, the more valuable they are. So we just keep pouring into this, increasing capability upon capability upon capability. Or maybe it's just the belief that actually it's, it's your efforts which will give you purpose and place. I mean, in my old church, I used to talk to lots of young adults. The youngest generation, Gen Z, man, they're so professionally mobile now. They'll stay in a job for like two years and move to another one, and then move to another one, and then move to another one. And each time they'll, be, they'll say, oh, I, just, I, this, I need my job to mean something. They go to one job and it doesn't mean anything. Go to another job, doesn't mean anything. And the reason you're underage, you see, is because you're still living under a law. It's not the law, it's not a ceremonial law that you find in the Old Testament. It won't be in Leviticus. Thou shalt change your job every three years. But it's a law nonetheless. It's a law which says your worth and your value is based on your efforts. If you think that because you are in the right job, suddenly your life means something is worthwhile, that's a law. It's a law. You're just saying, oh, my worth and value is defined by the job that I've chosen. God now loves me because I have poured myself into this great activity of social justice. It's a law. And Paul says you're underage by that law. You're under a guardian, a ruthless guardian. You're, in fact, you're enclosed by that law. You know why? Because it'll crush you. See, the law is not made for that. It's Paul's point about the Old Testament law, but it's his point about any kind of law of righteousness, actually. It's not made to make you righteous. And the moment you use it like that, it'll crush you. It will crush you. I see it crushing us. You see, the law which says, I need to ensure that I keep working because work is what gives me purpose and place. I need to climb the social strata. It crushes because we have no time for people. Don't worry about flattening the structure and including all people. We have no time for any people. We're too busy. We can barely make it to Sunday, let alone include people, draw people into our lives. You know what's partly stopping us from having Kushak's story happen in our churches? We don't have enough space. We don't have two years in our life to give someone. And part of the reason we don't have two years in our life to give someone is because we are under the law. We're using the law for the wrong thing. We need to grow up. How do you grow up? Well, I've got two tips for us. Two tips. First of all, and they, they, they kind of revolve around this one idea, use the law for what it's worth. That's part of what Paul's actually encouraging in Galatians. He's not writing off the law. He's saying use the law for what it's really worth. The law is there first and foremost. Use the law to show you your sin. Use the law to actually show you your sin. I had this realisation this week as I was, I was preparing for this morning's sermon that often I read the Old... I don't know if you're like me. Often I read the Old Testament and I look for the laws that I can do. You know, I look at a passage and I think, I can do that one. But that's actually not how you're meant to use the law. Paul says the law is meant to reveal your need. It's meant to reveal your brokenness. You need to allow the law to show you your failures, not your righteousness. I mean, that's fine if it affirms something you're doing. Great, keep doing it. But if that's the only reason you're reading the scriptures, if that's the only time when you open the Bible, you read it and you think, great, generosity. I'm generous, good job. 
but it said, you know, or hospitality, great, I'm hospitable. But it also said without grumbling, but I'll ignore that last bit. I don't know, that's just my way of reading the scriptures often. I was really rebuked by that this week. Use the law for what it's there for, to reveal your brokenness and your sin. But secondly, use the law for what it's there for, to point you to Christ, to show you Christ. Ever been to the country? What always strikes me about the country is, of course, nighttime, when there's none of the ambient lighting and you see hundreds of thousands more stars than you'll ever see in the city. And it's, of course, because there's nothing else to distract you from it. And actually, the, when you allow the law to show you your own sinfulness, your own brokenness, your own need, what actually emerges then is you're prompted not to look at yourself anymore, but to start to look at Christ. And what you find is an extraordinary, magnificent picture. Here's what Paul says in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 4. He says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, not regardless of the law, irrespective of the law, instead of the law, no, born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul is saying what the law does in part is not just show us our own failings, it shows us the supremacy of Christ, the extraordinary beauty of Christ. The thing that's so, so mind-blowing about Jesus is he lives 30 years of his life, three or four of them very intimately with Jewish men and women, and all of those who lived with him, all of them come away and say, this man was without sin. Without sin. Not he was a nice guy, best bloke I ever met, he was without sin. Now, they're Jews. They don't believe that that is possible for a human, but they can say it about Christ because he doesn't disregard the law. He lives under it perfectly. Perfectly. And the more you meditate on the law as a means of understanding Christ, the more you come to Scripture to know Christ, the more beautiful he'll be. He is the great morning star. He shines above everything. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the great God. You know, Christianity, you see, isn't about making you better. It's not about making you better. It's about helping you to see Jesus better. That's actually the primary purpose of the Christian faith. This great faith that came into the world was so that we might know Jesus better. That's what, the, that's what the Christian faith is about. It's not about making you better first and foremost. You have to leave that behind because as long as you think that, you'll always be under the law. You'll always be underage. You'll always be imprisoned. You'll always be without hope. You'll always be crushed in despair. But if you see Christ, you find hope, you find joy, you find peace, you find the great morning star. And you know what will happen, you see? When, when you see the beauty of Christ... You will want to be clothed with Christ. You will want to be clothed with Christ. You will say, I want my identity. I mean, if Jesus is so much better than you can ever be, don't you want your identity be found in him? Don't you want to have the closest of relationships with him? Don't you want him in every part of your life? See, the better you know Christ, the more you'll want to be clothed by Christ because he is worthy of it. And, and here's the great thing. The closer you are to Christ, the closer, the more you have all of the things that are his. See what Paul says 
as we finish. This is verse 4 and 5 again. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. He could say he sent Jesus. He could say he sent the Messiah. But he says his son. Why does he say his son? Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, when you are close to Christ, you don't just get his righteousness. How amazing that is. You get his place. You get his place. You get the place of the Son of God. You get to speak the words of the Son of God. Abba, Father, the very things that Jesus says are on your lips. You can say them. You can say them. To the extent that you are clothed with Christ, because you are in Christ, all the joys of this faith are yours. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joys of the gospel which grant us what is not ours, what is Christ's, but given to us. Lord, would you help us to know Christ better? Would you help us to let go of our obsession with our own efforts and turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus and rejoice in the gift of his adoption? Amen.